C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters is this small book filled with a collection of advice letters from a seasoned demon that are written to his nephew, who was a novice in the realm of distracting and destroying his patient, their patients, that being man and mankind, from the enemy, that being God. If you've never read it, and I highly recommend it for Christian or non-Christian, as it lays out brilliantly the wickedness of Satan's plans and causes to end man and his relationship with the enemy, that being God. And one of the most infamous quotes from dear old Uncle Screwtape is this. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And still obeys. To screw tape, there is nothing more dangerous than an obedient Christian. Screwtape's point, as he inks these pages, is that despite a, a believer's feelings, or lack, or even lukewarmness, there is nothing more dangerous to the enemy's schemes, and nothing greater to the kingdom of God than an obedient Christian. Christians here, or, or those here again who aren't, when I see the word obedience, what images are conjured up in your mind? What thoughts do you have about the idea of obedience? Are there flashes of authority and submission? Is obedience something we merely have Caesar Milan do with our dogs? Is it images of compliance or conformity? Does obedience to you mean loss of autonomy or that we're strong-armed? If you think about it, it seems that obedience challenges everything our culture The west side, Los Angeles, has evolved into. See, nobody tells me how to be me, right? No one tells me who I can and cannot marry. See, nobody tells me when I can and when I can't have sex. See, nobody tells me who I am or what I am or what I will be. You see, if one were to hollow out all the preconceived presuppositions with the action of obedience, we'd find at its core that it's the preservation of priorities. Obedience is the preservation of priorities. So when one is requested or commanded or encouraged to obey, it's for the preservation of priorities. So if there's any truth to that, then the West Side or Los Angeles, which looks very much anti-obedience, I'd actually say leans more to uber-obedience. Because I don't think our culture, I don't think Los Angeles, actually has an obedience issue. The greater the priority, the greater the depth of obedience. Because it all comes down to what or who you're obedient to. Obedience in and of itself is merely the byproduct to the object of our obedience. Wouldn't you agree? So as one can be obedient to their spouse or their employers or physicians or parents or government, we are first and foremost obedient to ourselves. 
We are obedient to ourselves. Our lust, our passions, our paths. We are the authority. This will happen. No, no, I will do this. This won't be missed. This is sacred. This is primal. So obedience, I believe, is a natural response of the human heart. Obedience is a natural response of the human heart. We are wholehearted creatures. But tonight we're going to see that it's just what wins that heart. It's what wins the human heart. It's what gains the whole heart. That's why the Bible has much to say on the subject of obedience. Because obedience to Christ, obedience to God, has a very different hue and saturation than obedience to our professors or our parents or even ourselves. See, where obedience for so many can be the loss of autonomy or strong-armed, obedience to Christ is the willing preservation of God's priorities. I've heard um, Christian obedience in the past described as like the intersection of beauty and duty. I've heard it been described as beauty and duty. That's Christian obedience. And this color of obedience is truly one of the most dangerous antidotes to the toxins of this world. And that could not be more clear than the book of Acts, but especially tonight with our verses. See, if you've been with us as these last few weeks... We've mined the entire cavern that is Acts chapter 5. And if we were to assess what we sort of dug up, it'd be the heavy, heavy emerald of obedience, of fearless, wholehearted, excuse me, obedience. Especially within the hall of our verses tonight. See, not only are we confronted with the apostles' obedience and inspired by their obedience, but also the contrast. Obedience's ugly cousin. And this is where one opposes. See, it does, I hope you guys recognize, Luke, our author, is brilliant at what he's done. It's basically like tonight he has two canvases, and he is putting them together side by side. Look at his creative layout and his brilliant journalism and writing here. There are stark, stark contrasts of those between, you know, between those who, who are immensely obedient and those who oppose. There's quite the clash of the titans here of how one responds to the name of Jesus. So that's what we're going to weigh tonight. That's what we're going to look at. What does it mean to be obedient? And what does it mean to oppose? What does it mean to be obedient to God? And what does it mean to oppose God? And I could not be happier with the relevance of this topic for each and every one of us here tonight. Because surely in a room this size, Christian or not, some right now, some here are opposing. Somebody right now in this moment is opposing God. Perhaps in your heart you are fighting or rebelling or rejecting the plans of God or the work of God or the person of God. And then guarantee there's people in this room who are obedient. Pursuing the Lord and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But still, we have to at least examine tonight and at least ask and prod to ensure that our motivations for obedience are pure. And I'd say there's some in this room right now who are unsure. They're at this crossroads of, do I obey or do I oppose? 
I really want to do this. And we're at this crossroads of should I do this or should I not? Should I oppose or should I be obedient to what the Lord would have? If that describes anyone, I've prayed all week, as I know the prayer team has at this church, and have hope in our God that you will find great encouragement from our episode tonight. See, if you remember with the apostles last week, those uniquely qualified and called by Jesus himself were arrested for their obedience. And then what happened? They were thrown into prison for their obedience. And please understand this prison. This isn't like cable television, three square meals, comfy, comfy prison. No, Alcatraz looks like a sandals resort to the prison they're in. This is like dungeon type of prison. And then they were released. You guys remember that from last week? They were released. Why? Because they did their time or they made bail? No. No, if you guys remember, they were busted out of there, tango and cash style, in the dark of night by a mysterious messenger. Do you remember who? An angel. An angel shows up. And we have no name for this angel. He delivered not his name or weapons or some sort of blackmail to do with the officials, but a simple message that they are to be obedient with. Do you guys remember his message? The message was ultimately this. Don't stop. The angel shows up and he's like, don't stop. And Peter looks back and it says in the Bible, can't stop, won't stop. I mean, that's the exact verse I just quoted. <laughs> Now look at, look at verse 20. It says, Go and stand, the angel says, in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, that being our friends, the apostles, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the standard of the people of Israel, and sent them to the prison to have them brought. They're oblivious. They have no idea what happened the night before. They have no idea. Look at verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards were standing there like we told them to. But when we opened it, there was nobody inside. This blows my mind. Can we just stop for a moment and realize what they're talking about? Essentially, and this is how my nine-year-old brain works, the angel let them out and I'm picturing the angel go, Peter, should we relock the door? <laughs> They'll have no idea. And like I'm picturing it. Peter's like, you should do it. Like I'm picturing, they relock the door. <laughs> and, look at, and someone came and told them. So they're in this moment where somebody's like, we can't find them. And somebody's like, sir, like are those, the, those are the guys preaching right now in the temple. Verse 27, when they had brought them, I mean, it's so comical. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. He said, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet, and hear this, because this is epic. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have filled this city with your teaching. We told you to knock that off. And you tend to bring this man's blood upon us. As, we, as I read these verses, I, was, I think I literally had to stop, and I think I said an audible, wow. They will, I mean, this is, 
First, let's, let's first look at this. First look at this. Uh, they have not yet, if you've noticed, all of, the, of all of the verses said, that being the officials, the name of Jesus. They have not yet said the name of Jesus. They will not say the name of Jesus because for somebody to say a name is to acknowledge their existence, their life. These men here today will not say his name. Because if you remember, or if you're familiar with these accounts, those are very officials. They executed Jesus. They threatened those who follow Jesus. They passed laws and banned anybody of speaking about Jesus. This all happened just a couple chapters ago, and we fast forward to now, and they say, Jerusalem is filled with your teaching of this man. So about that time, Jerusalem would have been somewhere around 60,000 people, maybe 425 acres, and every inch of it is being painted with the acrylics of the gospel. Think about this collective church community. Think about this for a moment. Wouldn't that just be amazing to hear about the West Side, for us to get busted because you have filled the West Side with your teaching. Unbelievable to think about what a man or a woman can do who are wholehearted. The words that shook the life of Game Changer Evangelist D.L. Moody were these. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a person who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Jerusalem saw a piece of that. Jerusalem saw that color. Why? I'm going to pound that drum again. The apostles' obedience. Christ continues to teach and do and speak through obedient disciples. And it was their very obedience which had got them caught again in the plain sight. I mean, again, it's got to be a serious case of deja vu for all parties involved. Here they are again. And to the world, it's folly. And to the authorities, it's ridiculous. But to heaven, it's glorious. And to the apostles, it's obedience. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God. We must obey God rather than men. Michael Green, theologian at Oxford and author in his book regarding the effects of the apostles, says this, their obedience to Christ is one of the most striking features of the story in Acts. I agree. And here, this is where we get to sit sort of front row and watch these two opposition and obedience clash as obedience to the gospel of Christ yet again meets opposition to the gospel of Christ even in the midst of such tribulation the preservation of God's priorities to the apostles was an absolute delight they were uncompromising and if we're honest if I'm honest is that not the Goliath temptation that faces us all so easily especially on the west side especially in Los Angeles to compromise? How easy it would be to, to nod our head or quiet our words or to look away, to allow society and culture to take these small bites out of the gospel and out of the Bible, out of our lives as Jesus followers. See, for so many, it's challenging. 
It's challenging to be obedient. It's tough to be obedient, to say, you know, to be uncompromising, and even tougher as an everyday resident of Los Angeles. But not all of us have had ever have or will have had a situation that we've compared, you know, to compare ourselves to what we're reading now with the apostles. Few of us know what it would be like to turn our backs on centuries of traditions like the apostles were. And yet they, un- they were uncompromising. The entire way they were raised up, they're uncompromising. They are obedient. None of us know what it looks like to escort in an entirely new society of life. That being the kingdom of God. A life totally committed to living out something greater and bigger and beyond themselves. So, yes, I, I still feel like you know, this portion of the talk, we're still a bit in the clouds when it comes to the concept of obedience. So I just wanted to very simply let you know what uppercut me this week, uh, which I hope affects you as well, is that the idea of obedience can and should exist with the great things, yeah, yes, but in the small of our everyday. Because I think Christians, or even some of those who aren't Christians, they probably get the 30,000-foot view of obedience for Christians. Okay, read your Bible. Be, you know, on mission and be in community. Love God. But at least, you know, at least for me, ignore the small and struggle with the small obedient moments. That mostly being, you know, to do, even when we don't feel like it. Just to do something when we don't feel like it. Think about this. I mean, oh, how beautiful it is to be obedient even when we don't feel like it. See, to merely just live a life of Christ and do things that's asked of us in Scripture or whatever when we want to, I mean, that's not, that's not obedience to God. That's obedience to ourself. That's bent inward obedience Again, I believe this is the danger factor Screwtape was talking about, though. That despite what our present circumstances may be or tell us, or what our flesh or our minds or our hearts may long for, to do the right thing in those moments is true, mature obedience. True, mature obedience. To be perfectly honest, I was stung by this all week. I had a very selfish week. I've had to ask for forgiveness of it a a few times as the days went on because I was not overflowing with a lot of zeal on Thursday just to crack open the Bible and start another talk, start another sermon prep. I was not feeling it at all. I was not basking in the many ways to be a pastor this week. And yet I needed to be reminded in those moments, what obedience looks like to prayer, even when I don't feel like it. Obedience looks like to his word, to love, to joy, to peace, to kindness, to long-suffering, to gentleness, even though I wasn't feeling it. I don't know what is dealt with you know, to you in your everyday, but my encouragement will be this, that there's no greater reward than obedience. No greater reward than obedience. It is the hallmark of all of those who follow after Jesus. Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, and I'm reading from the um, New International Version. It says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. 
Christian, is there any word from God that you are opposing, denying obedience? You know what's been asked of you, and you choose to compromise. We've got to get obedience is twofold. It's to know the master and then to hear the master. It's to know his lordship and then to heed and to hear his words. And to take one of those away is very, very dangerous. See, to know him as Lord but not heed his words, Jesus compares that to a man who builds a house with no foundation. He says, no, no, that's shaky. That's foolish. That, your house will be in ruins. And then on the other hand, to do his words without the recognition of who he is or what he has done is deadly. So that's to be obedient to get, be obedient to earn. You know, I do, therefore I receive. That's a motivation that Christ came to shatter. Michael Green, again, on the subject of rightly motivated obedience, went on to say, there's no greater challenge to the contemporary church than this. And I'd say the challenge for us is competing motivations for obedience. Fearless, bold, radical, willful, joyful, endless loyalty, like we behold in these verses tonight, can only be birthed out of a life that knows the love of God. Wholehearted obedience comes from wholehearted belief. Theologian Karl Barth helps package it up where he says, each act of obedience by the Christian is a modest proof, unequivocal for all its imperfections, of the reality of what he attests. Obedience is proof of what you believe. And Peter, in verse 30, attests all that he believes. Look at verse 30. Peter's talking about his motivation. He's sharing what his motivation is. That God our fathers was raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. That's what Peter is attesting to. Friends, hear me. You think I want to talk about obedience? I'm up here. The only reason I can be up here like pounding obedience on this pulpit or talking about obeying is because I believe and know firsthand an obedience that is not under guilt but under grace. Those here who don't follow Jesus, those here who maybe don't like Jesus or like his bride, the church, do you know that grace that I speak of? Christians, do you know it in your belly? Do you write it on the doorpost of your heart and lives? Another letter in the Bible, Romans says this, and this is so perfect for tonight. For just as through disobedience of the one man, that being the sin of the disobedient Adam, For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, us, you, me. So also through the obedience of one man, the Lord Jesus, then many will be made righteous, made right with God. To make the gospel of Jesus Christ our reality, that we believe that he took all the evil that's in our hearts and minds and he paid the punishment and took wrath for it means we are forgiven. It means we are free. It means we are freed from the chains of what we do and do not. And we can grasp in the name of Jesus for the first time who we are and who we are not. This is where beauty and duty don't contradict, but cohabitate. 
hear me, redemption through Jesus, which is necessary because of the disobedience of man, as we just read, is only possible because of the obedience of Jesus. So obedience at its core is, like we've been talking about, is the core of man's problem, but it's also the core of God's solution. If we've been led to believe that obedience to God is mechanical, to obey is mechanical or oppressive, hear me now, that is not rightly motivated obedience. That is not what Jesus has come to give us all, to freely give us mechanical, oppressive obedience. First John, a letter in the Bible says this, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments and wait for it, we're getting there, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. There's nothing oppressive or mechanical about obeying God. They are not burdensome. It has been famously said and worth saying here that the good news of Jesus operates radically different than what people believe religion is moralistic idea of I obey, therefore I am accepted. But Jesus came to wipe that clean and only he could do that so the gospel grace operates on the principle I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. Friends, I invite you to put your faith and your hope and your trust and your life in the name of Jesus and all that it stands for. That's what Peter puts in their face. The name of Jesus. Verse 30, again, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. You won't say his name, but I will. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. See, if we believe it's calling on the name of Jesus rather than our own name or our own merit or our own moral character or our own commitment or our own performance, you will experience for the first time a heart change, a life change, a social change, which is far greater than just try harder. If it's just try harder, this is pointless. That is not the Christian life. Try harder. That is mechanical and oppressive. And for all this to be realized in, a group, you know, in front of a group of Pharisees and Sadducees and Sanhedrin, to hear this, that basically you guys single-handedly are blocking the words of eternal life and goodness and that we can no longer preach this. That's what they're receiving. For them to hear this drives them to such anger that they want to do to them what they've already done to Jesus. Look at verse 33. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's obedience. It's not, these aren't aren't hollow, shallow threats. These guys have seen them already do to Jesus they know that they can easily take their life. So as these officials are turning, you know, Hulk green and their robes are busting at the seam and veins in their forehead are popping, as all this is going down, they hear the lone voice off in the distance. They hear something in the back. Men of Israel, take care for what you're about to do with these men. And who was it? Who steps up? Some random Christian, some follower of Jesus, the, the, the man who couldn't walk in Acts chapter 3? Was any of these people? No. Who is it? 
the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Dumbledore Pharisees, the, the greatest, most respected and beloved of Pharisees. His literal nickname is the beauty of the law. My nickname in high school was, hey, fat guy. And his is the beauty of the law. This Pharisee, Gamaliel, chimes in. Take care for what you're about to do with these men. They're about to be executed. No, 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 no. Slow down. And he gives the first speech in Acts that is delivered not from a believer. Pharisees, they were the popular, you know, religious teachers of the day. They were the books you read. They were the sermon podcasts that you subscribed to. For the most part, people liked the Pharisees. People of the day liked them. They were the common man's religious leaders. And the big dog is here now. And he informs the bitter council. He informs them that it is absolute folly, stupidity, to attack a movement that could conceivably have divine backing. He literally says out loud, slow your roll. And he goes on, and he basically gives sort of like the queen bee analogy, right? And he says this, this, he goes, that if the queen bee is killed, the rest of the colony will fall to the ground, and there will be chaos. As he mentioned, the other failed attempts, Thutis and the other Judas, and when their queen bee died, so did the colony and their entire movement. And he applies that to the gospel and the truth and the person of Jesus. See, really challenging the theology of the council here. He's basically saying, if you really believe what they're saying is garbage, council, Sanhedrin, Sadducees, if you believe this is garbage, then have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with it. The garbage will take itself out. But what he's forgetting is that only applies to a dead queen bee or to a dead leader and to a dead Jesus. And Jesus Christ is none of those things. See, if this was some random cult fad movement like skinny jeans, joke, stupid. <laughs> if this was some fad movement, some passing thing, it will pass away. The Pharisees like, it's going to pass away. But then he also says, if this is the kingdom of God breaking through, you will not be able to stop it. He goes, if this is really God, this is unstoppable. Unstoppable. And then we see 2,000 later, you know, 2,000 years later, uh, in a small high school in the Sawtell neighborhood, a group full of people learning and sitting and hearing about this story 2,000 years later. The beehive has only gotten stronger and bigger. But I encourage us to really digest the words of this Pharisee. Verse 38, really pick up on this. I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing God. If there's anyone here tonight who could be found opposing God in the big or the small things, opposing his convictions, opposing his instructions, opposing his call to get involved, to give, to do, or even opposing his desire for you to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, be mindful. 
those of us here who follow Christ and those of us here who don't, beware of opposing God. It is futile. Uh, The very famous Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, had this to say. He sort of rants and goes off. You can almost hear it in his voice. He goes, What have you got by opposing Christ? Why a house without furniture? For you, through your drunkenness, have had to see everything of value had. What have you got by opposing Christ? What man in all the world got anything ever by it? There is a serious loss sustained. But as for gained, as for gain, there is nothing of the sort. So what kind of gain comes with obedience? Well, for one, it told us in these verses, verse 32, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. What kind of gain comes with obedience? It's a hope for the future. It's a blessed assurance for the troubles of now. For it's a life clinging to the name of Jesus, and only this life which brings man to unquenchable joy which is perfectly modeled with the apostles here. Look at this. This is verse 40. We're wrapping it up. But look at this. And when they had called in the, or the apostles, they beat them. They flogged them. Don't think this is slaps on the wrist. Get out of here, Yale. They flogged them. Many, many die from this torture. And they charged them not to speak. And what? They say it not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And the apostles all went home in tears. Or not. Verse 41. And they left the presence of the council. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I'm, after a flogging, I don't know what I'd feel like. I don't know if I'm going out and skipping and singing and dancing. My goodness. My goodness. I mean, this is, this is real stuff. Verse 42, And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, that the Messiah is Jesus. Obedience. Wholehearted obedience to Jesus can have many different colors. But to no matter what, no matter what, it is essential. Obedience is essential. I say that as a friend. I say that as an honored pastor at this church. I love being a pastor here. It is essential. This church, this mission, our community, our efforts, he can only work through obedient disciples. He can only work through those who are obedient. If you desire to see resurgence in our city, in our relationships, in this life, we must pray that we are men and women who are wholehearted. Amen? Pray with me.